Buglers, we are live from Leicester Square Theatre on the 16th of September with Chris Addison and Alice Fraser. It might be our only London date of the year, so get your tickets now. Oh, get them at thebuglepodcast.com. That, that bit's important. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is a podcast from The Bugle. Hello, Urncasters, and here are some words that I really didn't want to say. Uh, welcome to the final Urncast of the series. Uh, they're words that I, I mean I didn't expect to say, but I, I still didn't want to say them. Here are some more words that I didn't want to say. England lost in less than three days for the second time in the series. Again, words I didn't want to say, but realistically, I probably did expect to be saying. And went down to a 4-0 defeat. Ditto. Actually, I was probably expecting a 5-0 defeat. When I look back into my... I can't remember if I predicted anything on the show. It might have been two all. But what I really expected in my uh, inner heart was uh, four or five nil. And so, you know, those words have come out. And they are now a fact. Uh, welcome to the... Uh, I don't want to call it a post-mortem, given that it's only sports. <laughs> a post-sportem. Let's call it a post-sportem <laughs> on the latest instalment of England's uh, Antipodean humiliations, uh, dating back decades, centuries even. Um, I'm joined, as always, by Felicity Ward. It's all over, Felicity. 4-0. There was a brief fleeting moment when England found a a veneer of competency Mm. uh, when they started their uh, fourth innings, chasing 271 to win. And it all ended ended with alarming speed. Um, Irritating speed, in fact. Um, Late on day three. Mm. Again, I got the feeling that even Australians were a bit disappointed by quite how crap England were at the end because it was shaping up to be a classic game. They felt robbed yeah. of a dramatic ending. How, how did you uh, How did you find it? When England started to come back and they were like finding some batting form, one, very funny, one of the commentators said, there was a sombre mood in the grounds when England had two for 68 because Australia <laughs> were worried that they were going to get, what, more than 100? Like that is how low the bar has been set. That people were, it was sombre. Australians yeah. were sombre, thinking that the that the, the England could rise above that. Um, they didn't. They got to naught for 68, or as it's correctly uh, said, 68 for naught. I mean, uh, this, <laughs> this is one of the many barriers between uh, England and Australia. It's flushing the toilet been. all over again. <laughs> <laughs> After seeing England find a tiny bit of form, was it the second day or the third day? Well, towards the end of the second day with the ball, when mm. um, uh, they had Australia, few is down again, and there's there's mm. some stats on how bad Australia's first ten overs are that we'll come to later in the show in in both innings combined. That really, yeah. that was a game they should they should have lost uh, from making really bad starts in both innings. So England bowled they bowled really well either side of the one period of play on, on day one when everything went to shit for about it was only I mean it was about forty overs. But Australia went at five and over on quite a difficult pitch after being twelve for three. They lost all ten wickets in the second innings in less than twenty three overs. After Jeez. getting to sixty eight for naught and a position where not only could they have won, but more importantly, 
they had the option of losing with dignity um, and making a game of it. And then they collapsed and they lost the last five wickets in 23 balls. Oh. Five wickets in 23 balls under the Bell Reeve lights. They, went, they didn't really go down fighting. They went down flailing and surrendering, essentially. The white flag would have been raised if it hadn't happened too quickly for anyone to find the white flag in the team's kit bag. They really jumped out of the plane without the, the parachute, didn't they? They were like, well, pick me! <laughs> they did that. But also, I don't know if they jumped out of the plane and tried to jump into the plane. I don't know if you saw the last <laughs> wicket of the series. Into the propeller. I mean, <laughs> the last two wickets is some of the worst cricket I've ever seen. And I've seen my dad play drunk on Christmas Day. Right. It was as if they dropped the bat and grabbed the ball and threw it into the stumps themselves. <laughs> The final ball of the series, Ollie Robinson, the uh, England, can't say fast bowler, his, his feet have been sinking <laughs> through the series. And um, The England bowler? <laughs> the England spin bowler, Ollie Robinson. <laughs> Admittedly, England had no chance of anything at this point. They'd already collapsed, already a number of pretty uh, loose shots had been played. But Robinson came in and he... He scored 100 in, in, his, in his first game of county cricket in 2015 on his test debut last summer in England. He, he got a very good 40 against a very fine New Zealand bowling attack. And um, usually it takes England tail-enders a good few years uh, to massively <laughs> decline and then give up uh, batting. And he's, uh, he's done so in a, a record time. And so he came in at... Um, he was number 10, but he didn't, hadn't faced a ball by the time Stuart Broad came in. Broad got a single, and Robinson's first ball from Pat Cummins, who was bowling, you know, as Pat Cummins does, well, fast and nastily. And <laughs> there's an amazing screenshot of, of the ball hitting the stumps, and one of Robinson's feet is literally off the cut strip. It's off the pitch. It is, <laughs> yeah. And it, it was on the way... Basically, his foot was already on the way to the pavilion by the time yeah. the ball hit the stumps, as if he said, I have a plane to catch. Yeah, I think that Ollie Robinson's foot said, well, if you're not leaving brain, I am. <laughs> if you're going to sit here and stay in the path of that violent ball, I'm f***ing <laughs> off. I think if you played that shot 10,000 times, you might hit hit the ball once. And this was sort of the final indignity for England batting in a series in which, you know, on on yeah, tricky pitches, in which, you know, a lot of us, most of Australia's batsmen also struggle against, you know, a high-class bowling attack. I mean, I think we can fairly say, firstly, they didn't succeed in the same way that Henry VIII didn't completely <laughs> succeed in getting to Saturn in a spaceship made of watermelons. Not quite. I didn't know what the f*** I was watching those last few balls. <laughs> it wasn't cricket. I don't even know if it was sports so much as dancing with a stick. <laughs> I didn't know what they were doing with their feet. I didn't know if they were trying to hit it so far out of the ground that they needed to give themselves space. I don't know if they were afraid of the ball and so they jumped out of the way. Honestly, have you ever seen anything like those last two balls? Uh, the last two wickets were just... They were they were bad. I mean, the last five wickets were were pretty bad. Um, pretty bad. It was all going very well. 68 for them, chasing 271. Yeah, tricky chase, uh, historically. But they made a really good start. And the WinViz predictor, which CrickViz uses basically every single data from the entire history of the known universe to predict who's going to win the game, actually had England over 50% 
probability of winning at that point, mm. 68 for naught. Ten wickets left, not a lot happening for the bowlers. And then in the last over before tea, Rory Burns plays on to Cameron Green, who was terrific throughout the series at bowling. And, I mean, this was one of the many things coming into this <laughs> series. Cameron Green had never taken a test wicket. He played four matches last year against India. Now, he was coming back from injury, and, you know, he, he was viewed as a very promising all-rounder, but he hadn't... He, he he just hadn't succeeded. There's not a single wicket in four tests, and he bowled around about 44, 45 overs. And he'd taken 13 in this series at an average of 15. Scott Boland, who not only had he not played <laughs> test matches before this series, I don't think anyone had even considered that he would ever play a test match before this series. He's coming and Certainly taken 18 not in the wickets. Ashes. 18 for 172. Can you f- believe that? Who takes 18 wickets? <laughs> There will be plenty of stats uh, later on in uh, uh, at least one stat whack, but Scott Boland's 18 wickets, 172 average, 9.5. Only two bowlers in the history of Test cricket have had a better average after three tests, having oh taken at least 10 wickets. They are Ernie Toshak, who played for Australia uh, straight after the Second World War, left arm, medium pace bowler. And then you've got to go back to Charles the Terror Turner. And the, <laughs> the mere fact that he has the Terror as a nickname tells you that he was very much a bowler from the 1880s. Charles the Terror <laughs> Turner. Two bowlers who hadn't taken a wicket between them in this series have taken 31 wickets out of the 99 England lost at a combined average of 12. And uh, that, I guess, is something that we hadn't really predicted before the series started. I don't think anyone predicted that Boland would be on the pitch, let alone taking that many wickets. So don't don't be too hard on yes. yourself on that one. Sometimes just bowlers come in and do really well and you think, yeah, well, uh, they've got a bit lucky, but he's been really, really good. Almost just been getting better? <laughs> yes, just remorselessly consistent, which I, I guess England might have been able to deal with if all the other Australian bowlers hadn't also been, well, Green and Cummins in particular. There was, just, yeah. there was no escape from England. Stark was a bit of light relief and he... Yeah, he was bowling 90 miles an hour, but at least you get the occasional boundary off him, even if he still took key wickets all the way through the series. It's been a tough, it's been a tough six weeks. How do these three words sit with you? Best of seven? <laughs> just wanted to see how. Uh, for the listeners, Andy just lost all of his hair. Let's see, let's take a closer look now at this the fifth and final test. The first ever Ashes match in Hobart. It was a great mm. occasion to be at. Um, there were, they put on free ferries across the Derwent River from Hobart to Bellroom. And that is, that I'm now going to have that written into my contract whenever I'm working at a test match. I demand a ferry ride to the cricket. It was, uh, it was a lovely way to get there. Bolivia is landlocked, Mr Zaltzman. <laughs> I don't care. Ferry or nothing. If England's playing in Bolivia, then A, it, it's good news for cricket. If Bolivia's become a test nation, it suggests the game has taken over the world. And B, England could definitely get a win in that series. Definitely. They could definitely Absolutely. win in Bolivia. Absolutely. Even at altitude. Have you never heard of the La Paz extravaganza? <laughs> yes, a terrifying mystery spinner. <laughs> there was great excitement. They put on a good show. That So not only was there a ferry, but there was a brass band waiting for the ferry oh, on the jetty in Bell Reef playing the, the old this. Channel 9 cricket music. It was sensational. Were they hired or were they voluntary? It looked organised. It wasn't a spontaneous brass band. I mean, it didn't it's quite have hard Rotary to... Club vibes? 
Not, not really, but there was a sousaphone, which is always good to see. Can you talk me through a sousaphone? Well, a sousaphone is a big brass instrument that you essentially have to climb inside. It sort of wraps around you. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what I thought they were. Just a French horn with elephantitis. Yes, essentially that's what it is. It's, I mean, it's the world's least practical <laughs> musical <laughs> instrument. <laughs> essentially it's, a, it's almost a house that you have to carry around with you. Yeah, it's a car with no wheels. So there was, there was great excitement about the game. and the, the, It was such a dramatic start. Australia, 12 for th- the first ball of the game, Stuart Broad runs in, slips over, falls flat on his face whilst appealing for LBW uh, against David Warner. Um, and uh, it, that, the whole of the first session sort of carried on in that madcap vein. It was 12 for three and then Australia just launches blazing counter-attack, got to, I think, 85, around about 80, 80 for three, I can't remember the exact score, when Marnus Labuschagne had one of the funniest dismissals in his... Just talk us through, talk our listeners through, Felicity, the balletic movements of Marnus. OK, well, how I want to set the scene is, if you are in the UK, have you ever been to a Cayley? If you're in Australia, have you ever been to a barn dance? If you're in America, have you ever been to a hoedown? Well, if you have then there is a move that you'll be familiar with known as the box step. You take your right leg and you cross across your left leg, then your left leg you cross over your right leg, and then with your right leg you step back. And it was if Labuschagne said, I'm going to hit the ball, but just before I do, it's a little bit of a hoedown. I don't know how he didn't come out of that move without a head injury. The amount of gymnastics that was required to get out for that ball. That was actually quite difficult. Yes. So he ended up... So not only... I mean, I, I completely agree with your description of it in terms of dancing, but what you've not factored in is imagine if someone had done that move having just downed two bottles of whiskey. And that's yeah, yeah. Ascent- and so his foot slipped. He, he kind of danced across his stumps trying to play this bizarre shot to try and flick broad. He was bowling really well to the leg side, missed it by a mile. His foot slipped. He ended flat on his face. <laughs> England were celebrating the zing bales went all over. It was one of the most humiliating dismissals. Yeah. It was a dismissal that was, deserved to be on the losing side in the series. I mean, this was... Yeah. <laughs> it, it was the kind of wicket that becomes an iconic emblem of a team's failure. A batsman yeah. flat on his face with his stumps all over the place. Yeah. And the opposition celebrating with not only joy, but utter bafflement at what had just happened. <laughs> Bafflement and revenge? It's got yes. real Harmison energy, doesn't it? Well, it does, apart from the fact that Australia were 3-0 up and um, even when he was out, he'd started turning the game and they were probably going to go 4-0 up. But apart from that, the humiliation was complete. Do you know what it is? It's like when, you know when one of your mates gets too hammered and you really want him to go home but no one can get him home because he gets a bit violent if you start to, you know, make demands on him and then he goes up to a girl who goes, no thanks, mate, and he pretends that he never even tried to in the first place and whips (laughs) around too quickly and falls over? Yes, yes. Where you're like, no one wants to see it, clean yourself (laughs) up, take yourself home and have a cold shower and you know that Labuschagne is such a prideful person I think yep. he like it demands integrity of himself, and he is not a silly boy, and that was a silly boy thing to do. <laughs> this dismissal should have been the defining image of the series, if only England had won three more matches than they did actually win. Um, so at that point, they were uh, you know 85, 85 for four, I think it was at at, uh, at lunch. 
But that was part of the fight back from 12 for 3. They got up to 204 for 4. So 192 mm. for 1. Really and about daddy. 5 and over, Travis Head got this brilliant 100. He's been, you know, the success story of the series uh, with the bat for Australia, as much as Boland unexpectedly with the ball and Green maybe doing even better than people expected um, given the injuries that he's had. He'd only taken 12 wickets in 25 first-class matches before this series, Green, down th- 13, mostly top-order players, mostly having scored 25 or more. Um, so it's a hugely influential series. Can I just pause you on um, Travis Head? Yes. Genuine question. Do you yeah. think he has any idea where he's hitting the ball? <laughs> because his bat goes left, the ball goes right, and he looks ahead going, hey? <laughs> Not. Where did it go? Well, I mean, if it's working for him, he should he should stick with it. Yeah. So it was an absolutely brilliant innings. Green made a really good uh, seventy four, and mm-hmm. Labuschagne made I think forty four, and it was you know one of those innings that might not look big on the scorecard, but had a huge influence on the game. One hundred and ninety two for one. Either side of that, Australia in the match two hundred and sixty six for nineteen, which is actually worse than England. So. In a sense, England did win that game, apart from the key passage of the match. Apart from the score. Yes. Very much England's game. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I would like to say special mention to Rory Burns, as I always think when I look at him, get a haircut. Just get a haircut. (laughs) The humidity is wreaking absolute havoc with his ends. I don't know if you saw the sweaty straggles hanging out the bottom of his helmet, but that was... That was nobody's business to see that. You put that back in a ponytail, babe. Yes, that's that's uh, fair. I mean, I'm not in a position to lecture anyone on hair, Felicity. You are. So. You have sensational <laughs> hair. <laughs> but in terms of hair care, I rely entirely on fate and physics. But it was interesting that Burns, who has, until the final end of the series, was batting in a, in a ponytail, and he went full-on hair out the back of the helmet and batted Real, a lot better. We will the, rock you. He made 26, could have been out three or four times. But he did, he did, you know, he did quite a lot, particularly in the context of this series with England, where, you know, we get excited when a player reaches 20. When Sam Billings in the first innings on deb- unexpected debut as a wicketkeeper batted really nicely, made 29. And, you know, when you're looking at someone who's made 29 as one of the real positives to take away from yeah. a series, that tells you things haven't been, um, haven't been that good. 29 used to be like, well, that's a good, you know, that's a Shane Warne score. Yes. 29's a, a lovely, lovely at the end. It's like not great if you're an opener, but you know it's it still helps the team score. It helps build the total. But when 29 is a highlight, yeah. Uh, look, we all know we can't keep going on about how shit, how deeply shit 
<laughs> this batting order is. I, you know what? I actually wanted to talk about this. I was going out with someone who took too many recreational drugs. Right. And because it seemed more serious, it was much easier to focus on his issues rather than my drinking problem. And <laughs> that's how I feel about the Australian batting order. England's right. batting has been so catasmic, cataclysmic, sorry, cataclysmically <laughs> no, no, that's shit. Fine. It's been so bad, I think you can make up a new word for it. So I think but, we should yeah. stick with that. Yeah, it's not just cataclysmically. Yes. It's catastrophically <laughs> shit that we've not really talked about the severe inconsistencies in our own team. Like we're saying, oh, yeah, Steve Smith had a rough series or Travis Head has had some highlights or at six foot seven, where does Cameron Green even buy trousers? But we should be asking, what are we going to do to get our batting order into shape? Because we are all over the shop. It is, it's been like luck that anyone has scored, let alone at the same time. My personal opinion, obviously, is to get the coldest thing to come out of Australia involved, Steve Waugh. You're going to reactivate Steve Waugh. That's a big call. No, I want him as head coach. That's what I want. What the Australian team need is disappointed stepdad energy. (laughs) You know, Langer is too much one of them. Langer still sees himself as a cricket player. Steve Waugh is like everything, everything's on his shoulders. Life is a burden. That's what he is. He's a batsman. He's a bowler. He's a leader. He accepts nothing less than the best. And even then, that's not good enough. Right. <laughs> the best is not enough. That's a great. That's a that, that's a good slogan. We should have that as the tagline for this podcast. Um. <laughs> <laughs> the best is not enough. So we never try. <laughs> I might be pl- plastered on the walls of the England dressing room. One of the other great highlights of the game was Stuart Broad getting into battle with a robot. Oh. He was running into bowl. And there's a camera on a robotic trolley that zooms around the outfield to get different angled pictures. Because Hobart's stuck in the 80s, so they do like to have a little bit of short circuit action. He was running in and the robot moved and he stopped. And you just heard him shouting, Stop moving the robots! <laughs> Which I think might be the first time those words have ever been shouted on a... <laughs> On a, cr- on a cricket pitch. And, um, it kind of said, you know, even inanimate objects were getting under England's skin at this point. I think they'd taken all their fury out that they could on the Australians. They, there was, <laughs> they really couldn't get angry at Australia at any point. They're like, this is really our problem. Hang on, there's a robot. Get him. Get him. As if this series hadn't been tough enough to watch as an England supporter, then Stuart Broad, who did really well in this series, uh, particularly bowling, gave further notice of the inevitable robot takeover that will render our species uh, redundant. It was just another, another difficult thing. I don't want to be reminded of the singularity while I'm watching the ashes, you know? <laughs> That's my slogan. The other major positive for England was the uh, heroically fast and um, finally effective bowling of Mark Wood, who had a terrible start to the game. His first 10 overs hit all over the place for 74, after which he took nine wickets in the rest of the game uh, for round about, I think, round about 70-odd runs, uh, six for 37 in the second innings. He's bowled with remarkable persistence through the series, without having taken many wickets or having a lot of luck. His speed endurance as a bowler has been amazingly impressive, and finally, he, he just went to bowl bouncers, and Australia, I mean, they dealt with it really badly. He had about, you know, <laughs> of his nine wickets, I think seven were out playing, you know, 
bad shots to short balls, you know, hooks caught to you know, three men waiting for them. Uh, it was slightly end of term batting, but it was really great to see Wood, who's a you know brilliant cricketer to watch and a you know, great character in the game. Finally, 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 after all these efforts, getting uh, getting the rewards he deserved. There was a lovely stat about it, Felicity. If I get a little bit cricket nerdy on it, if you could, if you could, six for thirty-seven, so that's six point one six runs per wicket. And England bowlers who've taken a five-wicket haul at a better average since the 1880s. There's only three of them, and they are three icons of English fast bowling. John Snow, 1970-71, spearheaded England's Ashes-winning campaign. Frank Tyson did the same in 1954-55. And then Harold Larwood, the hero of Bodyline, the only three England bowlers since the 1880s to have a fifer at a lower average than Mark Wood in this game. That was one of my favourite stats Delicious. of the entire series. I'm sure Mark Wood listens to this um, podcast <laughs> and uh, I hope that he did enjoy that factoid as well. It really did feel like the last day of school, didn't it? It just, towards the end, Australia were batting like England. It was watching us go down like flies was so disappointing. Now, we do know that Joe Root really wanted to win this. He's been there all over, like all summer he's been wanting to win. He's wanted to change. But I do want you to watch the moment he gets bowled in the second innings. Out for 11. Should be devastated. His smile is electric. <laughs> His skin was glowing. He knew that he didn't have to bat for a second longer on that godforsaken island. The cricket was done. He could just be sad now. And it really, I have not seen him smile like that. Despite being in a beautiful country surrounded by beaches and sun and incredible food and happy people, he has not smiled like that the, the whole summer. Well, yes, he's had a really tough series and he's, 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 he batted really well at the start but his tailed off a bit. This final innings, he got a ball from Boland that bounced uh, as if you know physics had just stopped working <laughs> and it just kind of scuttled along about six inches off the ground, went under his bat. No way he could have done anything about it. And to me, that, that smile was it was like from a Greek myth, someone looking up to Mount Olympus saying, oh, gods, why do you hate me so? Um, Realising the futility of life in a cruel universe. He's had a tough series, undoubtedly. England's top scorer, but only made 322 runs. No one else even reached 250, Jesus. which is... Uh, in anyone's uh, mathematical language, suboptimal. Well, we have a treat for you, Urncasters, because this week we have not one, but two Statwax Stand Back. <laughs> Statwax. We're going to start with the Hobart Statwax Felicity, because there were some amazing uh, stats uh, from uh, this game. Uh, in particular, there's been a lot of talk about uh, county cricket and whether it's producing the kind of players. Uh, at the same time, everyone's been saying, oh, well, you know, Head and Labashain uh, all benefited from county cricket, but at the same time, it's been ruining England's players. It's quite hard to understand, but there's a <laughs> lot of criticism of the 100-ball competition. But is it in some way helping England? Because if you look at the first 100 balls of each team's innings in this game, Australia collapsed at the start of both innings, a total of 95 for six in the two innings combined in the first 100 balls. England... 117 for three, and one of them was Rory Burns being run out in the first innings. So a massive win for England. If only Test cricket was restricted to 100 balls, England would have absolutely crushed Australia in this game. 
I can make that happen, Andy. Okay. <laughs> it's uh, it's already happening. It's called the hundred. Oh yes. Well, well, it's starting to bear fruit. On the subject of uh, Rory Burns's dismissal, David Warner got a pair as well. They were each faced the first ball, and it was only the second time in Test history that in the first three innings of a Test match, the number one batsman has been out for naught, and only the fifth time in any Test match that there have been three ducks by the number one. And David mm. Warner became the first opening batsman to get two pairs, two ducks in a game, t- twice in the history of the Ashes. Really? A landmark. His first innings duck, uh, 22 balls, the 200th duck by an Australian opener in Test history and the longest where balls faced have been recorded. So a real wow. moment of history for, for David Warner. I got a new little um, new name for some of the players. Oh, yeah. Warner, Smith and Labuschagne. Duck, duck, yep. goose. <laughs> Six England players were bowled out in the second innings. And generally in Australia, the ball bounces over the stumps. It, with Joe Root, it nearly went under the stumps. But it's the <laughs> first time this millennium England have had six players bowled out in innings by anyone. And in Australia, it's only the fourth time since 1955 that any team has had its timbers tickled six times in a single <laughs> test innings. A it's bit of a timbers niche tickled is really... It's tickled me. <laughs> the 68-run uh, opening stand in England's second innings. England's joint second-highest opening stand in the last six series against Australia. 30 test matches. That uh, highlights some of the... From Australia's openers have been struggling... Uh, as, as well. Mm-hmm. Rory Burns run out. He was uh, only the third opener to be run out for a duck in the history of the Ashes. Simon Katic in Adelaide in 2010 in the first over of the game and Andrew Stoddart for England back in 1893. And uh, finally, England made five changes for this test. We talked a bit about their changes uh, earlier on. It's the 11th mm. time in 23 games that they've made four or more changes, having done so 10 times in the previous 235 test matches over um, 19 odd years and I think if I remember my own stat from the first day of the game I think it's the second (laughs) time ever that England have made five changes during a series away from home so once again selectorial mayhem has not really paid off I've got a couple of sick burns for the series. Okay. I haven't done any sick burns uh, this series, but I thought it's the finale. I thought we could wrap it up, do a couple of sick burns for the series. First sick burn is Western Australia closing the borders. Just the premiers taking control of their borders over the prime minister. Like just going, no, we're not having cricket here. You have no power over us. It's like the Prime Minister has all the conviction of a raver's asshole the next morning. <laughs> you know, never sure if it's a shard or a fart. That's what ScoMo is. I'm sure raver's asshole is a little village somewhere in uh, <laughs> the Northern Territory, isn't it? Uh, no, that's in Wales, I believe. Oh, right, raver's asshole, yeah. It's got three L's. <laughs> Second sick burn that that was England trying their best. That's a sick burn. I've been very kind throughout the series, but I do just need to say it straight away. And the last one, the sick burn is on me, and that is Nathan Lyon continuing to be a crucial part of the Australian team, despite the shit that I keep hanging on him. (laughs) He hit a ball literally out of the park, not over the boundary. It was rolling in the streets of Hobart. Are you f***ing kidding me? This series could have gone so differently, Felicity, as we journey into 
the Urncast alternative universe. What would have happened if England had batted first in Brisbane when they won the toss? How different would this series have been? Now, I've run this through several computers and I've averaged out the results of their simulations. And what would have happened? Obviously, as we saw in Hobart, England would have got early inroads on a helpful pitch. If they you know, picked Stuart Broad, James Anderson had been fit, you know, they'd have probably been, I don't know, what, 40 for nine after four overs. <laughs> um, England would have been right in the series, confidence up, Australia's doubts would have resurfaced after their series defeat at home to a to an injury-ravaged India a year ago. The whole Australiac nation would have been racked with concern and negativity that would have suffused into the play of osmosed into their very souls. England would have realised this isn't the Australia of old. The young batsmen in the team would have sensed the chance to do something incredible, to carve their names into history. They'd have been inspired by the ghosts of English greats of the past, cheering them on from the grave. Australia then would have been under pressure with the ball off their batting failed. Stark and Lyons scrutinised after their poor series against India a year ago. Away of unstoppable momentum would surely carry England through all the way to at least the end of the third over of their innings when they're four for two and Roots trudging to the wicket with that oh no not again face on and they go on to lose the series 4-0 but at least we'd have had more than 0.5 seconds of hope I like the alternative universe Andy yeah they're often the best ones I like in your wildest dreams that you still lose (laughs) 4-0 There was no limit on that at all. There was no limit on your creativity or your imagination. And all you wanted was a couple of sweet minutes of reprieve. (laughs) Andy, you've been in Australia for what seems like years now. And I thought while you've been away, I want to know your best ofs, your favourites. So I've got a little questionnaire for you. Just off the top of the dome. Love a quiz. And this is the best part. You can't get it wrong. Unlike the England team, you cannot get this wrong. So, Andy, what's been your least disappointing Wi-Fi connection? Oh, the least disappointing Wi-Fi. Because Lord knows we've had some shit eaters while we've done this podcast. Yes. That's a tough one. That's uh, that's up there with least disappointing session of cricket of the series. (laughs) Um, I think I had a a, a moderately uh, okay one in... uh, in Adelaide, so I think I'll, I think I'll go with that. Unusual, was, uh, yeah. Unusual. I mean, Adelaide, of course, as everyone knows, uh, there were no convicts in Adelaide. They were just the settlers. They were the good people, apparently. <laughs> That's why the Wi-Fi works. That's why the Wi-Fi works. Yeah, it's just a much more morally upstanding sort of Wi-Fi <laughs> in Adelaide. Than yeah, that's right. Uh, second question. Yep. Which pillow, hotel pillow, came closest to laying next to your wife? Which one emulated the experience of having a cuddle? Right. Uh, I mean, there's no real way that I can answer this question without insulting my wife. Um, (laughs) So I would say, obviously, uh, no pillow can match human perfection, Felicity. A lovely intro. She doesn't listen, Andy. She doesn't listen to this. She she stopped listening to you years ago. (laughs) My husband's never listened to this podcast. (laughs) Ever. It's our safe space, Felicity. It is our safe space. Okay, so obviously nothing comes close to perfection. Yep. What's been your top pillow? My top pillow? Oh, there were some oddly long ones in one of the hotels. I can't remember This is what I'm talking about. Which one it was. Sometimes oddly it's nice long. to have a cuddle. Yeah, but I, don't, I haven't actually cuddled. I mean, it feels like an opportunity missed now to 
Snu- snuggle up with a pillow. Yeah, have a little comfort. Yeah. That's what the I long d- pillows are for. Right. We send you to paradise and you don't even know how to enjoy yourself there. Yes. So why are Australian pillows so long? That's what I want to know. And what are they trying to What do you on? have, like couch cushions at home in your bed? What do you got? <laughs> well, just you speak, you know, the width of a head plus a bit more. So Australia, I'm not expecting people to, people's heads to suddenly expand. Is it because people used to sleep in their hats? So needed a wide enough pillow for the massive Australian hats. No, it's because they saw your hair and thought, we need to accommodate this. Okay. Third question. Yep. Give us your top three moments where you thought, this isn't worth it, while you're out there. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a tricky one because, yeah, obviously, coming to, to Australia for the Ashes is a genuine childhood dream of mine and you know, working on TMS. So I don't think I ever thought it wasn't worth it, but from a... From a cricketing point of view I think they were all basically within the first second of play of the series <laughs> with uh, not picking uh, Broad on a pitch made for him uh, winning the toss mm. and bowling and then Rory Burns almost I mean kind of he laid a, a, a set of template that Marnus Labuschagne then you know adapted to more comic <laughs> effect in the final test of the series it was almost like a f***ing callback well that's a sick burn isn't it <laughs> When that is a sick burn. Your top batsman basically lampoons the way you started the series in the fifth test. Just going, That's, nothing matters yeah. now. It would only be if he had like a joint hanging out of his mouth while he was doing it going, <laughs> you, Rory. <laughs> and look, Andy, just to wind it up, on a lovely note, what was your favourite city? My favourite city? Well, I've always loved coming to Australia, but I really enjoy being in Hobart, partly because I've not been here before, and it's got a very different vibe, and mm. you, know, you, you spoke about it very fondly last week. Um, uh, so that's been, that's, that's been I guess, the, the travel highlight. I've been to the other three cities I've been to um, before, Melbourne, Sydney, and, uh, and Adelaide, and obviously it's a strange time to be travelling around Australia, but Hobart's been, uh, been, been delightful. You had some nice meals there? You had some nice food? I have had some nice food and also some extremely fried food. Um, oh. <laughs> slightly too fried. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we've eaten well. There were oysters in the press box. Uh, oh, what a treat. I don't think is particularly necessary for a cricket press box, but it was certainly... Uh, it's a lovely touch, though, isn't it? ...by the hacks, yes. I mean, very hard when you're all trying not to f*** each other while you're commentating. <laughs> <laughs> The aphrodisiac. Agus, don't look me in the eye. <laughs> Earncast Q&A time. Now, well, we've asked uh, you listeners uh, on Twitter for some, uh, for some questions. Thank you to everyone who sent some in. We will address some of these issues now. This one came from at the cricket list. Why do we keep doing this to ourselves? I think that's a very valid question after mm. the eighth Ashes thrashing in nine tours. Why do we keep doing this? Also, I think it's you know it's sort of a philosophical tradition now, um, and I think in some ways, you know, if we didn't have a quadrennial humiliation in Australia, what what would be left of of England? It's become one of one of our defining national national characteristics in this age of you know, ch- shifting political sands and uncertainty about. You know, what national identity really means. This is this is one of the few few things we we can truly all cleave to as a yeah. as a nation. Basically, the Queen and getting hammered in Australia. 
Yeah. I mean, I my husband is uh, is very committed to having a glass panel on the shower. And I said right. to him, why can't we have just a curtain, a shower curtain? And he said, well, then we'd be no better than the dinosaurs. And I think that... <laughs> I think that with this same spirit that I answer that question, that you do need to go to Australia. You do need to lose. It's a part of it. And it's a philo- it is a philosophical exercise. What if philosophically we won? Yes. You yeah. know, what if England won? And you, well, I mean, you need to keep playing that out. We did have an answer to that question in 2010-11 when a very, very strong England team won 3-1 over here. As part of you know several years of... of, of mm. uh, Success and um, people started complaining about the team being boring. So I mean, that was, that, that's what happens. You know, yeah. we don't want to win. We get confused when it happens. Felicity. <laughs> yeah. Hey, how come no one's in front of me? Wait, are we in front? Ah, panic. <laughs> this comes from uh, Paddy Coyne. In what aspect of cricket have England outperformed Australia during this series? There must be something. Well, I guess you know, f- fewest batsmen who've ended. Flat on their face with their stumps all over the place. Mm-hmm. That's definitely an England an England win. More headbands. Yes. More sweatbands from um, from Stuart from Stewie yep. B as I've started yep. calling him. I just did that's, it then. That's that's been uh, been excellent. It's been really good. How do they keep the whites so white? <laughs> because those guys are sliding and kneeling and falling and crouching, and you never see a stain. So just shout right. out to the dry cleaners there. <laughs> So yeah, so I mean, of England's trousers been been better than uh, than Australia's? Maybe a bit whiter, maybe a yeah, little bit. That's something. I mean, it's quite hard to find many things that they've outperformed Australia in that aren't outperforming them in a deeply negative way. You know, I think we'll stick with with not having a batsman flat on their face. And yeah, that's a good lovely, one. Lovely laundry. I've got a great one here from James Nessel. He said, "How in God's name did that stump in Sydney stay in the ground?" Well, that is a good question. So that was uh, Cameron Green bowling to Ben Stokes, smashed the stump, the ball deflected to the wicketkeeper, and the bales did not come off. Uh, I think that was probably the closest we could come to proof of the existence of of God. That <laughs> or God that magic is real. Yeah, wanted wanted to see Ben Stokes bat for a bit longer. He went on and you know, made a good sixty odd. So it's possible that it was divine intervention. Uh, also possible it's just you know, bad physics that you know because phys- yeah you know, we rely on physics but you know physics is human <laughs> like the rest of us can't perform every day as uh, England's players have shown during can't this perform series. every day <laughs> also I mean I think they sort of put because of the camera stumps they don't want them getting smashed to pieces and knocked out so they the stumps you don't see stumps knocked out the ground anymore so I think they're kind of con- almost concreted in. So, They're like um, one of those um, clowns that you punch and it comes straight back up. Yes. They're actually inflatable. Yeah. You, you don't know that, listeners, but the stumps <laughs> are inflatable. Well, I mean, I think that is something that maybe they could consider to, to even things up a bit in, in one-sided series, that, that, that the losing team gets to bowl at bigger stumps in the next game. You know, if you're behind <laughs> in the series, the opposition stumps are made bigger by, you know, And they get bigger 20%. wicketkeeper gloves, like yeah, the Mickey Mouse too. ones. <laughs> I've got a question here, Andy, that I would like yep. you to answer, if I may. This is from B okay. Miles or at Rantaloons. How would you rate the quality of seagull at each of the five grounds? You are the man <laughs> on the ground. I would love to know your opinion on this. 
Did you notice well, the difference between interstate seagulls? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the ones in Hobart, I went to the Mona Art Gallery yesterday, and apparently Pat Cummins took the Australian team there in the morning as well as a, as a kind of celebratory artistic outing. Can you imagine going to the Cloaca exhibition with a hangover, watching <laughs> an actual shit get made? Horrific. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for all the swearing. Yes. And actually, yeah, I mean, it's it took a hell of a lot longer than England uh, took to basically <laughs> have the same effect in that collapse on uh, day three in Hobart. It's a performance art piece. <laughs> They've renamed it The Ashes. There were some very aggressive seagulls in the uh, outside Mona, the little kind of grassy bit where mm. they, were, they seemed to be very keen on uh, the uh, chips I was eating. And... Yeah. They look at you in a rather aggressive way. Graham Roberts asks, Andy, I'm so unutterably uh, depressed by England's performances, I haven't been able to listen to the Urncast since the first test. Should I listen to the final episode? I mean, it's a bit late in the episode to be asking that question, and it's quite hard to know how to answer it without knowing, without you already having made that decision, Graham. So uh, mm. can we get very, very philosophical? Any advice? If a Graham tweets and doesn't hear it, do we actually get the answer? Oh, well, there we go. I think we're all learning. Philip Greenwood asks, who would win a running race between Angela Lansbury and Madeleine Albright? I don't know quite what the cricketing angle on it is. I mean, there must be one because he sent it to a cricket, a cricket podcast. I think I mean, they just want to get to know us, Andy. Right. Are we interested in American politics or are we interested in crime-solving fictional <laughs> authors? <laughs> I mean, I personally think that obviously, you know, you're sizing up, you know, how Lansbury and Albright would be as fast bowlers because, you know, obviously on speed to the crease isn't everything, small mm. bat and rhythm. But, I mean, who would you take out of, you know, if you had to choose one of those to take the new ball in a test match? It's a big question. Lansbury or Albright? I mean, Albright, obviously, as a giant of American politics, probably have a lot of kind of craft about how to, you know, manipulate the situation, work on batsmen's weaknesses, but. You know, Lansbury also performed at the highest level for years. Um, really, <laughs> I I mean, they could make a, a good opening, a good opening pair. I think you're absolutely right there. Um, a bowling, one at each end. Yeah, I mean, also if you've got Pat Cummins at the other end, it doesn't matter who else is bowling. You're still going, you're still going to be in trouble anyway. I, I'm happy to hear your anger coming out. That's healthy. Yeah, that, that's fine. Yeah. What you've got with Angela Lansbury is she's she's a problem solver. So yep. she'd be able to analyse the situation, look at stats, have a bit of a sniff, know where their weak spots are. But right. Madeline can take the pressure. <laughs> She's a great poker player. You're never going to see it in her face. You're never going to see what ball's coming until it's actually uh, in front of you and in front of your bat and in front of your stumps. So I think they're going to be a formidable pair and an absolutely fantastic question. And uh, I look forward to seeing them in the next England team. <laughs> One final question. This came from Alan. After Owen Morgan changed the culture of the England one-day team, which Ireland player can England poach to turn around the Test team? Well, I don't think there's a player, but I mean, if you had to choose a single Irish person mm. from history to turn around, I mean, you could go with, uh, you know, take Jonathan Swift, the 18th century satirist. I think he could do it certainly on sledging, you know, because it's been a very friendly series, and I think that's helped England. We need to get you know get some mm. proper satire flying in from under the lid at short leg. Dylan Moran, right? Go for this sort of comedy angle. A little bit of comedy, quite maudlin on the field. Yeah, uh, and I think that 
you know, where Joe Root's tried to pretend that he's upbeat, where actually he's felt quite down. I don't think Dylan Moran would uh, humour the team, right. uh, ironically. I think he'd just say, you're useless. <laughs> Please get better. I want to go home. Why am I playing for England when I historically hate that country? There we go. So I hope that's answered all your questions. Thank you very much for your contributions. We will have more Q&As uh, in future Ashes series, including the 2071 Ashes series, which we've uh, just <laughs> exclusively won the broadcast rights to. Uh, and Jimmy Anderson will be opening the bowling at the age of 89 <laughs> for England. Can't wait. Andy, as we all know, when captains are behind the microphone, they've got to use euphemisms, they've got to be polite, they've got to be leaders. And I just wanted to translate um, Joe Root and Pat Cummins' post-match interview line by line just to show you what was actually going through their head. So we've got Joe Root here. Yeah, it's, um, it's been a frustration throughout. It's been a really tough tour for us. What he actually meant was, I have single-handedly held this team together with my bat and a withered spirit. <laughs> we've played good cricket in parts. We've just not managed to... To string a whole game together. What he actually meant was, we're shit and we know we are. We're shit and we know we are. The next line. It's something that we have to learn from as a, as a group. What he meant was, dead shits. The lot of them. <laughs> we have to keep looking to get better. Um, learn from these experiences. Not go away from here and, and keep making the same mistakes. What he meant was... Do you know what hurry curry is? It's a Japanese ritual disembowelment. That's how I feel saying this utter tripe, game in and game out. <laughs> Finally. That's a challenge for the group moving forward. Um, it won't be long before we're back playing test cricket again, so there, there will be opportunities to turn that around. And what he means is, I need a Stella and a wank. <laughs> Every Pat. Like, yes, I seem to have been in a familiar position here with you a few times where it's a big smile on your face, job done. Is it childhood dream stuff? Yeah, it really is. What he meant is, yes, come on, I'm going to get maggot. We won the f***ing ashes and the boys are going to get feral. Come on, come on. <laughs> Family show. Family yes. show. It's, it's not nice to have those insights into the, into the player's mind. That's what I do. I'm a, I'm a therapist, effectively. <laughs> well, uh, it's time to round off this series of uh, the Urncast with... A final stat whack, uh, looking back at the series as a whole and trying to put into context exactly what we've just seen. So here it comes. Stand back. It's a stat whack. Uh, Felicity, this was the shortest Ashes series in Australia in terms of balls bowled ever. Ever? Counting Ashes series of five tests. Some of the early ones were only... Uh, yeah, one, two or three tests. 1,455 overs in total. Less than half the cricket played in the 1928-29 series when there were more than 3,000 overs bowled. Um, those were the days. Just those lots and lots of cricket. Good old so many dot balls. A lot of dot balls. So many people reading newspapers in the stands. Yes. They also had Australia had an odd number of men in their mid to late 40s suddenly becoming <laughs> test cricketers in that series. So much to enjoy. Uh, England lasted just 711 overs and lost uh, 99 wickets. And the bowling strike rate for Australia, their bowlers took a wicket every 43.5 balls which is the second lowest team bowling strike rate 
by a team in a series in Australia of three or more games, 192 series in that sample. The only time a team has had a lower strike rate, and that was only two years ago, Australia, when they demolished New Zealand, who then went on to win the World Test Championship. So maybe that's the template for England. They just realised that losing loads of wickets to Australia could then spark uh, great great success. Yeah, it's it's like when you take a run-off, you've got to go backwards first to go forwards more. England averaged 20.2 runs per wicket in the series, their lowest in an Ashes series since 1890, and their lowest in any Ashes series of four or more matches, brought to a close heroically uh, by that final day collapse in, in Hobart, which was the fifth time in four years that England have lost all ten wickets for less than 65 runs, having done so four times in the previous 40 years and only nine times in the previous 110. Now five times in four years. And only once against Australia since 1908 of England lost all 10 wickets for fewer than the 56 they managed in Hobart. That was at the Oval in 1948. 20.2 is England's fifth worst team batting average in any series of four or more matches against anyone. And uh, it's, it's only their second worst of the last year. They were averaged 19.8 in India at the start of last year, although that was on some really, really difficult pitches. But even then, they averaged 19.8, having scored 580-odd in the first innings of the series. So, basically, since then, England have won, uh, I think, one test out of 14 since then. It's been a tough time. Travis Heads finally, leading run score in the series with 357 uh, which is the lowest aggregate to be top run scorer in the Ashes since Neil Harvey tops the list with 354 in the 1954-55 series. Highlighting it's been a tough series for both teams' batting lineups. England had four bowlers averaging under 30, and in the last 120 years, since 1901-02, every time England have had four or more bowlers who've taken five or more wickets at an average under 30 in a series in Australia, they have won. Every time before this, about six series until this one, and their bowlers did okay, and they've been hammered. So, there we go. No more stats. Here endeth the stats. What a raver's asshole to go out on. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for listening uh, to the Bugle Ashes Urncast. It's been a delight to bring you all the thrilling downs and downs uh, of this uh, this series. It's been a great experience for me coming to Australia and seeing, well, not nearly as much cricket as I would ideally have seen. But uh, <laughs> Sometimes not in a, the, even in the same city. Yes, I've seen a, a total of 14 days of cricket in person live. Well, Andy, I would like to say thank you for making the enormous sacrifice of going out to a beautiful country to watch cricket for six weeks. <laughs> I really appreciate that. And yes. thank you for doing that when I couldn't see my family. Yep. I feel for you having to be there and I feel relieved that you get to come home now to this beautiful, sunny island called (laughs) England. Well, yes, I will just, uh, in my few remaining days in Australia, I will just pass on your your greetings to everyone and say Felicity says hi to everyone. Yeah. The chances are you would run into someone that knows me. It's so embarrassing <laughs> being Australian. You're like, oh, yeah, we just all know each other. And then someone's like, do you know someone off Neighbours? I'm like, I know multiple people off Neighbours. <laughs> multiple. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back, hopefully, for a future Ashes that will hopefully be a little more competitive. Until then... May the cricket be with you. Goodbye. Goodbye.
You can listen to other programmes from The Bugle, including The Bugle, The Last Post, Tiny Revolutions and The Gargle, wherever you find your podcasts.